Prelude continues with sections 7 to 8 and begins with chapter 1, sections 1 to 3 of The World's Set Free. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The World Set Free by H. G. Wells. Section 7 at the close of the nineteenth century as a multitude of passages in the literature of that time witness it was thought that the fact that man had at last had successful and profitable dealings with the steam that scalded him and the electricity that flashed and banged about the sky at him was an amazing and perhaps a culminating exercise of his intelligence and his intellectual courage the air of Nunz Demetis sounds in same of these writings. The great things are discovered, wrote Gerald Brown in his summary of the 19th century. For us there remains little but the working out of detail. The spirit of the seeker was still rare in the world. Education was unskilled, unstimulating, scholarly, and but little valued and few people even then could have realized that science was still but the flimsiest of trial sketches and discovery scarcely beginning no one seems to have been afraid of science and its possibilities yet now where there had been but a score or so of seekers there were many thousands and for one needle of speculation that had been probing the curtain of appearances in eighteen hundred there were now hundreds and already chemistry which had been content with her atoms and molecules for the better part of a century was preparing herself for that vast next stride that was to revolutionize the whole life of man from top to bottom one realizes how crude was the science of that time when one considers the case of the composition of air this was determined by that strange genius and recluse, that man of mystery, that disemboweled intelligence, Henry Cavendish, towards the end of the 18th century. So far as he was concerned, the work was admirably done. He separated all the known ingredients of the air with a precision altogether remarkable. He even put it upon record that he had some doubt about the purity of the nitrogen. For more than a hundred years his determination was repeated by chemists all the world over. His apparatus was treasured in London. He became, as they used to say, classic, and always, at every one of the innumerable repetitions of his experiment, that sly element argon was hiding among the nitrogen and with a little helium and traces of other substances and indeed all the hints that might have led to the new departures of the twentieth century chemistry and every time it slipped unobserved through the professorial fingers that repeated his procedure is it any wonder then with this margin of inaccuracy 
that up to the very dawn of the twentieth century scientific discovery was still rather a procession of happy accidents than an orderly conquest of nature yet the spirit of seeking was spreading steadily through the world even the schoolmaster could not check it for the mere handful who grew up to feel wonder and curiosity about the secrets of nature in the nineteenth century there were now at the beginning of the twentieth myriads escaping from the limitations of intellectual routine and the habitual life in europe in america north and south in japan in china and all about the world it was in nineteen ten that the parents of young holston who was to be called by a whole generation of scientific men the greatest of european chemists were staying in a villa near santo domenico between fizzoli and florence he was then only fifteen but he was already distinguished as a mathematician and possessed by a savage appetite to understand he had been particularly attracted by the mystery of phosphorescence and its apparent unrelatedness to every other source of light he was to tell afterwards in his reminiscences how he watched the fireflies drifting and glowing among the dark trees in the garden of the villa under the warm blue night sky of italy how he caught and kept them in cages dissected them first studying the general anatomy of insects very elaborately and how he began to experiment with the effects of various gases and varying temperatures upon their light then the chance present of a little scientific toy invented by sir william crookes a toy called the spintheroscope on which radium particles impinge upon sulphide of zinc and make it luminous induced him to associate the two sets of phenomena it was a happy association for his inquiries it was a rare and fortunate thing too that any one with the mathematical gift should have been taken by these curiosities section eight and while the boy holston was mooning over his fireflies at fizzoli a certain professor of physics named rufus was giving a course of afternoon lectures upon radio and radioactivity in edinburgh there were lectures that had attracted a very considerable amount of attention he gave them in a small lecture theatre that had become more and more congested as his course proceeded at his concluding discussion it was crowded right up to the ceiling at the back and there people were standing standing without any sense of fatigue so fascinating did they find his suggestions one youngster in particular a chuckle-headed scrubbed-haired lad from the highlands sat hugging his knee with great sand-red hands and drinking in every word eyes aglow cheeks flushed and ears burning and so said the professor we see that this radium which seemed at first a fantastic exception a mad inversion of all that was most established and fundamental in the constitution of matter is really at one with the rest of the elements 
it does noticeably and forcibly what probably all the other elements are doing with an imperceptible slowness it is like the single voice crying aloud that betrays the silent breathing multitude in the darkness radium is an element that is breaking up and flying to pieces but perhaps all elements are doing that at less perceptible rates uranium certainly is thorium the stuff of this incandescent gas mantle certainly is actinium i feel that we are but beginning the list and we know now that the atom that once we thought hard and impenetrable and indivisible and final and lifeless lifeless is really a reservoir of immense energy that is the most wonderful thing about all this work a little while ago we thought of the atoms as we thought of bricks as solid building material as substantial matter as units masses of lifeless stuff and behold these bricks are boxes treasure boxes boxes full of the intensest force this little bottle contains about a pint of uranium oxide that is to say about fourteen ounces of the element uranium it is worth about a pound and in this bottle ladies and gentlemen in the atoms in this bottle there slumbers at least as much energy as we could get by burning a hundred and sixty tons of coal if at a word in one instant i could suddenly release that energy here and now it would blow us and everything about us to fragments if i could turn it into the machinery that lights this city it could keep edinburgh brightly lit for a week but at present no man knows no man has an inkling of how this little lump of stuff can be made to hasten the release of its store it does release it as a burn trickles slowly the uranium changes into radium the radium changes into a gas called the radium emanation and that again to what we called radium a and so the process goes on giving out energy at every stage until at last we reach the last stage of all which is so far as we can tell at present lead but we cannot hasten it i take ye man whispered the chuckle-headed lad with his red hands tightening like a vice upon his knee i take ye man go on oh go on the professor went on after a little pause why is the change gradual he asked why does only a minute fraction of the radium disintegrate in any particular second why does it dole itself out so slowly and so exactly why does not all the uranium change to radium and all the radium change to the next lowest thing at once why this decay by driblets why not a decay in mass suppose presently we find it is possible to quicken that decay the chuckle-headed lad nodded rapidly the wonderful inevitable idea was coming he drew his knee up towards his chin and swayed in his seat with excitement why not he echoed why not the professor lifted his forefinger given that knowledge he said mark what we should be able to do 
we should not only be able to use this uranium and thorium, not only should we have a source of power so potent that a man might carry in his hand the energy to light a city for a year, fight a fleet of battleships, or drive one of our giant liners across the Atlantic, but we should also have a clue that would enable us at last to quicken the process of disintegration in all the other elements, where decay is still so slow as to escape our finest measurements. Every scrap of solid matter in the world would become an available reservoir of concentrated force. Do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, what these things would mean for us? The scrubhead nodded. Oh, go on, go on. It would mean a change in human conditions that I can only compare to the discovery of fire, that first discovery that lifted man above the brute. We stand today towards radioactivity as our ancestors stood towards fire before he had learned to make it. He knew it then only as a strange thing utterly beyond his control, a flare on the crest of the volcano, a red destruction that poured through the forest. So it is that we know radioactivity today. This, this is the dawn of a new day in human living. At the climax of that civilization, which had its beginnings in the hammered flint and the fire-stick of the savage, just when it is becoming apparent that our ever-increasing needs cannot be borne indefinitely by our present sources of energy, we discover suddenly the possibility of an entirely new civilization. The energy we need for our very existence and with which nature supplies us still so grudgingly, is in reality locked up in inconceivable quantities all about us. We cannot pick that lock at present, but... He paused. His voice sank so that everybody strained a little to hear him. We will. He put up that lean finger again, his solitary gesture, and then he said... Then that perpetual struggle for existence, that perpetual struggle to live on the bare surplus of nature's energies, will cease to be the lot of man. Man will step from the pinnacle of this civilization to the beginning of the next. I have no eloquence, ladies and gentlemen, to express the vision of man's material destiny that opens out before me. I see the desert continents transformed, the poles no longer wildernesses of ice, the whole world once more Eden. I see the power of man reached out among the stars. He stopped abruptly with a catching of the breath that many an actor or orator might have envied. The lecture was over. The audience hung silent for a few seconds, sighed, became audible, stirred, fluttered, prepared for dispersal. More light was turned on, and what had been a dim mass of figures became a bright confusion of movement. Some of the people signaled to friends, some crowded down towards the platform to examine the lecturer's apparatus and make notes of his diagrams. But the chuckle-headed lad with the scrubbed hair wanted no such detailed frittering away of the thoughts that had inspired him. He wanted to be alone with them. He elbowed his way out almost fiercely. He made himself as angular and bony as a cow. 
fearing lest someone should speak to him, lest someone should invade his glowing sphere of enthusiasm. He went through the streets with a rapt face, like a saint who sees visions. He had arms disproportionately long and ridiculous big feet. He must get alone, get somewhere high out of all this crowding of commonness of everyday life. He made his way to the top of Arthur's seat, and there he sat for a long time in the golden evening sunshine. Still, except that ever and again he whispered to himself some precious phrase that had stuck in his mind. If, he whispered, if only we could pick that lock. The sun was sinking over the distant hills. Already it was shorn of its beams, a globe of ruddy gold, hanging over the great banks of cloud that would presently engulf it. Eh, said the youngster, eh? He seemed to wake up at last out of his entrancement, and the red sun was there before his eyes. He stared at it, at first without intelligence, and then with a gathering recognition. Into his mind came a strange echo of that ancestral fancy, that fancy of a stone-age savage, dead and scattered bones among the drift two hundred thousand years ago. Ye old thing, he said, and his eyes were shining, and he made a kind of grabbing gesture with his hand. Ye old red thing, we'll have ye yet. Chapter 1 The New Source of Energy Section 1 the problem which was already being mooted by such scientific men as Ramsey, Rutherford, and Soddy in the very beginning of the twentieth century, the problem of inducing radioactivity in the heavier elements and so tapping the internal energy of atoms, was solved by a wonderful combination of induction, intuition, and luck by Holston so soon as the year 1933. From the first detection of radioactivity to its first subjugation to human purpose measured little more than a quarter of a century. For twenty years after that, indeed, minor difficulties prevented any striking practical application of his success. But the essential thing was done. This new boundary in the march of human progress was crossed in that year. He set up atomic disintegration in a minute particle of bismuth. It exploded with great violence into a heavy gas of extreme radioactivity, which disintegrated in its turn in the course of seven days, and it was only after another year's work that he was able to show practically that the last result of this rapid release of energy was gold. But the thing was done at the cost of a blistered chest and an injured finger, and from the moment when the invisible speck of bismuth flashed into writhing and renting energy. Holston knew that he had opened a way for mankind, however narrow and dark it might still be, to worlds of limitless power. He recorded as much in the strange diary biography he left the world, a diary that was up to that particular moment a mass of speculations and calculations. 
and which suddenly became for a space an amazingly minute and human record of sensations and emotions that all humanity might understand he gives in broken phrases and often single words it is true but none the less vividly for that a record of the twenty-four hours following the demonstration of the correctness of his intricate tracery of computations and guesses i thought i should not sleep he writes the words he omitted are supplied in brackets on account of pain in the hand and the chest and the wonder of what i had done slept like a child he felt strange and disconcerted the next morning he had nothing to do he was living alone in apartments in bloomsbury and he decided to go up to hampstead heath which he had known when he was a little boy as a breezy playground he went up by the underground tube that was then the recognized means of travel from one part of london to another and walked up heath street from the tube station to the open heath he found it a gully of planks and scaffoldings between the hoardings of house wreckers the spirit of the times had seized upon that narrow steep and winding thoroughfare and was in the act of making it commodious and interesting according to the remarkable ideals of neo-georgian asceticism such is the illogical quality of humanity that holston fresh from work that was like a petard under the seat of current civilization saw these changes with regret he had come up heath street perhaps a thousand times had known the windows of all the little shops spent hours in the vanished cinematograph theatre and marvelled at the high-flung early georgian houses upon the westward bank of that old gully of a thoroughfare he felt strange with all these familiar things gone he escaped at last with a feeling of relief from this choked alley of trenches and holes and cranes and emerged upon the old familiar scene about the white stone pond that at least was very much as it used to be there were still the fine old red brick houses to left and right of him the reservoir had been improved by a portico of marble the white fronted inn with the clustering flowers above its portico still stood out at the angle of the ways and the blue view to harrow hill and harrow spire a view of hills and trees and shining waters and wind-driven cloud shadows was like the opening of a great window to the ascending londoner all that was very reassuring there was the same strolling crowd the same perpetual miracle of motors dodging through it harmlessly escaping headlong into the country from the sabbatical stuffiness behind and below them there was a band still a woman suffrage meeting for the suffrage woman had won their way back to the tolerance a trifle derisive of the populace again socialist orators politicians a band and the same wild uproar of dogs frantic with the gladness of their one blessed weekly release from the backyard and the chain and away along the road to the spaniards stroll a vast multitude saying as ever 
that the view of London was exceptionally clear that day. Young Holson's face was white. He walked with that uneasy affectation of ease that marks an overstrained nervous system and an under-exercised body. He hesitated at the white stone pond whether to go to the left of it or to the right and again at the fork of the roads. He kept shifting his stick in his hand and every now and then he would get in the way of people on the footpath or be jostled by them because of the uncertainty of his movements. He felt, he confesses, inadequate to ordinary existence. He seemed to himself to be something inhuman and mischievous. All the people about him looked fairly prosperous, fairly happy, fairly well adapted to the lives they had to lead. A week of work and a Sunday of best clothes and mild promenading, and he had launched something that would disorganize the entire fabric that held their contentments and ambitions and satisfactions together felt like an imbecile who had presented a box full of loaded revolvers to a crutch he notes he met a man named lawson an old schoolfellow of whom history now knows only that he was red-faced and had a terrier he and holston walked together and holston was sufficiently pale and jumpy for lawson to tell him he overworked and needed a holiday they sat down at a little table outside the county council house of golders hill park and sent one of the waiters to the bull and bush for a couple of bottles of beer no doubt at lawson's suggestion the beer warmed holson's rather dehumanized system he began to tell lawson as clearly as he could to what his great discovery amounted lawson feigned attention but indeed he had neither the knowledge nor the imagination to understand in the end before many years are out this must eventually change war transit lighting building and every sort of manufacture even agriculture every material human concern then holston stopped short lawson had leaped to his feet damn that dog cried lawson look at it now hey here pewee 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 come here bobs come here the young scientific man with his bandaged hand sat at the green table too tired to convey the wonder of the thing he had sought so long his friend whistled and bawled for his dog and the sunday people drifted about him through the spring sunshine for a moment or so holston stared at lawson in astonishment for he had been too intent upon what he had been saying to realize how little lawson had attended then he remarked, well, and smiled faintly, and finished the tankard of beer before him. Lawson sat down again. One must look after one's dog, he said, with a note of apology. What was it you were telling me? Section 2 In the evening, Holston went out again. He walked to St. Paul's Cathedral and stood for a time near the door listening to the evening service. The candles upon the altar reminded him in some odd way of the fireflies at Fizzoli. Then he walked back through the evening lights to Westminster. He was oppressed. He was indeed scared. 
by his sense of the immense consequences of his discovery. He had a vague idea that night that he ought not to publish his results, that they were premature, that some secret association of wise men should take care of his work and hand it on from generation to generation until the world was riper for its practical application. He felt that nobody in all the thousands of people he passed had really awakened to the fact of change. They trusted the world for what it was, not to alter too rapidly, to respect their trust, their assurances, their habits, their little accustomed traffics and hard-won positions. He went into those little gardens beneath the overhanging, brightly lit masses of the Savoy Hotel and the Hotel Cecil. He sat down on a seat and became aware of the talk of the two people next to him. It was the talk of a young couple evidently on the eve of marriage. The man was congratulating himself on having regular employment at last. They like me, he said, and I like the job. If I work up, in a dozen years or so I ought to be getting something pretty comfortable. That's the plain sense of it, Hetty. There ain't no reason whatsoever why we shouldn't get along very decently. Very decently indeed. The desire for a little success is amidst conditions securely fixed. So it struck upon Holston's mind. He added in his diary, I had a sense of all this globe as that. By that phrase he meant a kind of clairvoyant vision of this populated world as a whole of all its cities and towns and villages, its high roads and the inns beside them, its gardens and farms and upland pastures, its boatmen and sailors, its ships coming along the great circles of the ocean, its timetables and appointments and payments and dues as it were one unified and progressive spectacle. Sometimes such visions came to him, his mind, accustomed to great generalizations and yet acutely sensitive to detail, saw things far more comprehensively than the minds of most of his contemporaries. Usually the teeming sphere moved on to its predestined ends and circled with a stately swiftness on its path about the sun. Usually it was all a living progress that altered under his regard, but now fatigue a little deadened him to that incessancy of life. It seemed now just an eternal circling. He lapsed to the commoner persuasion of the great fixities and recurrencies of the human routine, the remoter past of wandering savagery, the inevitable changes of tomorrow were veiled, and he saw only day and night, seed time and harvest, loving and begetting births and deaths, walks in the summer sunlight and tales by the winter fireside, the ancient sequence of hope and acts and age perennially renewed, eddying on forever and ever, save that now that impious hand of research was raised to overthrow this drowsy, gently humming, habitual sunlit spinning top of man's existence. For a time he forgot wars and crimes and hates and persecutions, famine and pestilence, the cruelties of beasts, weariness and the bitter wind, 
failure and insufficiency and retrocession he saw all mankind in terms of the humble sunday couple upon the, the seat beside him who schemed their inglorious outlook and improbable contentments i had a sense of all this globe as that his intelligence struggled against this mood and struggled for a time in vain he reassured himself against the invasion of this disconcerting idea that he was something strange and inhuman a loose wanderer from the flock returning with evil gifts from his sustained unnatural excursions amidst the darknesses and phosphorescence between the fair surfaces of life man had not always been thus the instincts and the desires of a little home the little plot was not all his nature also he was an adventurer an experimenter an unresting curiosity an insatiable desire for a few thousand generations indeed he had tilled the earth and followed the seasons saying his prayers grinding his corn and trampling the october wine-press yet not for so long but that he was still full of restless stirrings if there have been home and routine and the field thought holston there have also been wonder and the sea he turned his head and looked up over the back of the seat at the great hotels above him full of softly shaded lights and the glow and color and stir of feasting might his gift to mankind mean simply more of that he got up and walked out of the garden surveyed a passing tram-car laden with warm light against the deep blues of evening dripping and trailing long skirts of shining reflection he crossed the embankment and stood for a time watching the dark river and turning ever and again to the lit buildings and bridges his mind began to scheme conceivable replacement of all those clustering arrangements it has begun he writes in the diary in which these things are recorded it is not for me to reach out to consequences i cannot foresee i am a part not a whole i am a little instrument in the armory of change if i were to burn all these papers before a score of years had passed some other man would be doing this section three holston before he died was destined to see atomic energy dominating every other source of power but for some years yet a vast network of difficulties in detail and application kept the new discovery from any effective invasion of ordinary life the path from the laboratory to the workshop is sometimes a tortuous one electromagnetic radiations were known and demonstrated for twenty years before marconi made them practically available and in the same way it was twenty years before induced radioactivity could be brought to practical utilization the thing of course was discussed very much more perhaps at the time of its discovery than during the interval of technical adaptation but with very little realization of the huge economic revolution that impended what chiefly impressed the journalists of nineteen thirty three was the production of gold from bismuth 
and the realization, albeit upon unprofitable lines of the alchemist's dreams. There was a considerable amount of discussion and expectation in that more intelligent section of the educated publics of the various civilized countries which followed scientific development. But for the most part the world went about its business, as the inhabitants of those Swiss villages which live under the perpetual threat of overhanging rocks and mountains go about their business, just as though the possible was impossible, as though the inevitable was postponed forever because it was delayed. It was in 1953 that the first Holston-Roberts engine brought induced radioactivity into the sphere of industrial production, and its first general use was to replace the steam engine in electrical generating stations. Hard upon the appearance of this came the Destata engine, the invention of two among the brilliant galaxy of Bengali inventors the modernization of Indian thought was producing at this time, which was used chiefly for automobiles, aeroplanes, waterplanes, and such like mobile purposes. The American Kemp engine, differing widely in principle but equally practicable, and the Krupp Erlanger came hard upon the heels of this and by the autumn of 1954 a gigantic replacement of industrial methods and machinery was in progress all about the habitable globe. Small wonder was this when the cost, even of these earliest and clumsiest of atomic engines, is compared with that of the power they superseded. Allowing for lubrication, the Dastata engine once it was started cost a penny to run thirty-seven miles and added only nine and a quarter pounds to the weight of the carriage it drove it made the heavy alcohol-driven automobile of the time ridiculous in appearance as well as preposterously costly for many years the price of coal and every form of liquid fuel had been clambering to levels that made even the revival of the draft horse seem a practicable possibility. And now, with the abrupt relaxation of this stringency, the change in appearance of the traffic upon the world's roads was instantaneous. In three years, the frightful armored monsters that had hooted and smoked and thundered about the world for four awful decades were swept away to the dealers in old metal and the highways thronged with light and clean and shimmering shapes of silvered steel. At the same time, a new impetus was given to aviation by the relatively enormous power for weight of the atomic engine. It was at last possible to add Redmayne's ingenuous helicopter ascent and descent engine to the vertical propeller that had hitherto been the sole driving force of the airplane without overweighing the machine, and men found themselves possessed of an instrument of flight that could hover or ascend or descend vertically and gently as well as rush wildly through the air. The last dread of flying vanished, as the journalist of the time phrased it. This was the epoch of the leap into the air. The new atomic aeroplane became indeed a mania, 
every one of means was frantic to possess a thing so controllable so secure and so free from the dust and danger of the road and in france alone in the year nineteen forty three thirty thousand of these new aeroplanes were manufactured and licensed and soared humming softly into the sky and with an equal speed atomic engines of various types invaded industrialism the railways paid enormous premiums for priority in the delivery of atomic traction engines atomic smelting was embarked upon so eagerly as to lead to a number of disastrous explosions due to inexperienced handling of the new power and the revolutionary cheapening of both materials and electricity made the entire reconstruction of domestic buildings a matter merely dependent upon a reorganization of the methods of the builder and the house furnisher viewed from this side of the new power and from the point of view of those who financed and manufactured the new engines and material it required the age of the leap into the air was one of astonishing prosperity patent holding companies were presently paying dividends of five or six hundred per cent and enormous fortunes were made and fantastic wages earned by all who were concerned in the new developments this prosperity was not a little enhanced by the fact that in both the Dastata and holston roberts engines one of the recoverable waste products was gold the former disintegrated dust of bismuth and the latter dust of lead and that this new supply of gold led quite naturally to a rise in prices throughout the world this spectacle of feverish enterprise was productivity this crowding flight of happy and fortunate rich people every great city was as if a crawling anthill had suddenly taken wing was the bright side of the opening phase of the new epoch in human history beneath that brightness was a gathering darkness a deepening dismay if there was a vast development of production there was also a huge destruction of values these glaring factories working night and day these glittering new vehicles swinging noiselessly along the roads these flights of dragonflies that swooped and soared and, and circled in the air were indeed no more than the brightnesses of lamps and fires that gleam out when the world sinks towards twilight and the night between these highlights accumulated disaster social catastrophe the coal mines were manifestly doomed to closure at no very distant date the vast amount of capital invested in oil was becoming unsaleable millions of coal miners steel workers upon the old lines vast swarms of unskilled or underskilled laborers in innumerable occupations were being flung out of employment by the superior efficiency of the new machinery the rapid fall in the cost of transit was destroying high land values at every center of population the value of existing house property had become problematical gold was undergoing headlong depreciation all the securities upon which the credit of the world rested were slipping and sliding 
banks were tottering the stock exchanges were scenes of feverish panic this was the reverse of the spectacle these were the black and monstrous under consequences of the leap into the air there is a story of a demented london stockbroker running out into threadneedle street and tearing off his clothes as he ran the steel trust is scrapping the whole of its plant he shouted the state railways are going to scrap all their engines everything's going to be scrapped everything come and scrap the mint you fellows come and scrap the mint in the year nineteen fifty five the suicide rate for the united states of america quadrupled any previous record there was an enormous increase also in violent crime throughout the world the thing had come upon an unprepared humanity it seemed as though human society was to be smashed by its own magnificent gains for there had been no foresight of these things there had been no attempt anywhere even to compute the probable dislocations this flood of inexpensive energy would produce in human affairs the world in these days was not really governed at all in the sense in which government came to be understood in subsequent years government was a treaty not a design it was forensic conservative disputatious unseeing unthinking uncreative throughout the world except where the vestiges of absolutism still sheltered the court favored and the trusted servant it was in the hands of the predominant caste of lawyers who had an enormous advantage in being the only trained caste their professional education and every circumstance in the manipulation of the fantastically naive electoral methods by which they clambered to power conspired to keep them contemptuous of facts conscientiously unimaginative alert to claim and seize advantages and suspicious of every generosity government was an obstructive business of energetic fractions progress went on outside of and in spite of public activities and legislation was the last crippling recognition of needs so clamorous and imperative and facts so aggressively established as to invade even the dingy seclusions of the judges and threaten the very existence of the otherwise inattentive political machine the world was so little governed that with the very coming of plenty in the full tide of an incalculable abundance when everything necessary to satisfy human needs and everything necessary to realize such will and purpose as existed then in human hearts was already at hand one has to tell of hardship famine anger confusion conflict and incoherent suffering there was no scheme for the distribution of this vast new wealth that had come at last within the reach of men there was no clear conception that any such distribution was possible as one attempts a comprehensive view of those opening years of the new age as one measures it against the latent achievements that later years have demonstrated one begins to measure the blindness the narrowness the insensate 
unimaginative individualism of the pre-atomic time. Under this tremendous dawn of power and freedom, under a sky ablaze with promise, in the very presence of science standing like some bountiful goddess over all the squat darknesses of human life, holding patiently in her strong arms until men chose to take them, security, plenty, the solution of riddles, the key of the bravest adventures, in her very presence and with the earnest of her gifts in court. The world was to witness such things as the squalid spectacle of the Dastata patent litigation. There, in a stuffy court in London, a grimy oblong box of a room, during the exceptional heat of the May of 1956, the leading counsel of the day argued and shouted over a miserable little matter of more royalties or less, and whether the Das Data Company might not bar the Holstein-Roberts methods of utilizing the new power. The Das Data people were indeed making a strenuous attempt to secure a world monopoly in atomic engineering. The judge after the manner of those times sat raised above the court wearing a preposterous gown and a foolish huge wig, the council also wore dirty-looking little wigs and queer black gowns over their usual costume, wigs and gowns that were held to be necessary to their pleading, and upon unclean wooden benches stirred and whispered artful-looking solicitors, busily scribbling reporters, the parties to the case, expert witnesses, interested people, and a jostling confusion of subpoenaed persons, briefless young barristers, forming a style on the most esteemed and truculent examples, and casual eccentric spectators who preferred this pit of iniquity to the free sunlight outside. Everyone was damply hot, the examining king's counsel wiped the perspiration from his huge, clean-shaven upper lip, and into this atmosphere of grasping contention and human exhalations the daylight filtered through a window that was manifestly dirty. The jury sat in a double pew to the left of the judge, looking as uncomfortable as frogs that have fallen into an ash pit, and in the witness box lied the would-be omnivorous Das under cross-examination. Holston had always been accustomed to publish his results so soon as they appeared to him to be sufficiently advanced to furnish a basis for further work. And to that confiding disposition and one happy flash of adaptive invention, the alert Das owed his claim. But indeed, a vast multitude of such sharp people were clutching, patenting, preempting, monopolizing this or that feature of the new development, seeking to subdue this gigantic wing power to the purposes of their little lusts and avarice. That trial is just one of innumerable disputes of the same kind. For a time the face of the world festered with patent legislation. It chanced, however, to have one oddly dramatic feature in the fact that Holston, 
after being kept waiting about the court for two days as a beggar might have waited at a rich man's door after being bullied by ushers and watched by policemen was called as a witness rather severely handled by counsel and told not to quibble by the judge when he was trying to be absolutely explicit the judge scratched his nose with a quill pen and sneered at holston's astonishment round the corner of his monstrous wig holston was a great man was he well in a law court great men were put in their places we want to know has the plaintiff added anything to this or hasn't he said the judge we don't want to have your views whether sir philip das's improvements were merely superficial adaptations or whether they were implicit in your paper no doubt after the manner of inventors you think most things that were ever likely to be discovered are implicit in your papers no doubt also you think too that most subsequent additions and modifications are merely superficial inventors have a way of thinking that the law isn't concerned with that sort of thing the law has nothing to do with the vanity of inventors the law is concerned with the question whether these patent rights have the novelty the plaintiff claims for them what that admission may or may not stop and all these other things you are saying in your overflowing zeal to answer more than the questions addressed to you none of these things have anything whatever to do with the case in hand it is a matter of constant astonishment to me in this court to see how you scientific men with all your extraordinary claims to precision and veracity wander and wander so soon as you get into the witness box i know no more unsatisfactory class of witness the plain and simple question is has sir philip das made any real addition to existing knowledge and methods in this matter or has he not we don't want to know whether there were large or small additions nor what the consequences of your admission may be that you will leave to us holston was silent surely said the judge almost pityingly no he hasn't said holston perceiving that for once in his life he must disregard infinitesimals ah said the judge now why couldn't you say that when counsel put the question an entry in holston's diary autobiography dated five days later runs still amazed the law is the most dangerous thing in this country it is hundreds of years old it hasn't an idea the oldest of old bottles and this new wine the most explosive wine something will overtake them end of prelude section seven and eight end of chapter one sections one to three